You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we do have our notes available in our Google Drive folder if you would like to reference our slide notes today as well. Two weeks ago, we talked about um, really pursuing purity in our lives, uh, in our relationships with the opposite sex specifically. We talked about how we're called to remain pure both in thought and action as an outworking of the gospel in our life for the glory of God. We talked about when we're not pursuing purity, that the gospel picture is at stake in our life, uh, the glory of God in our life is at stake, our sanctification, potentially even our life and coming judgment is at stake as well. Our church and our friends are at stake by the choices that we make in this area. All reasons to consider pursuing purity in our life at all costs. Uh, we talked about um, pursuing marriage being the appropriate means of enjoying the desires that God has given to us. And so very early on, we should be working towards marriage if we're single, uh, and we believe that God has not gifted us towards uh, singleness forever. We talked about um, pursuing each other when we're in marriage, um, that we pursue each other, we make sure that, that relationship main, remains intact as a, as a means of protection for purity in our life. Um, we also talked about knowing what we believe about di- divorce for our own protection in our marriage, as well as to make sure that we offer right and biblical counsel to others that may come to us. And then from an application standpoint, for purity in our life, we talked about seeking accountability, avoiding triggers in our life that makes purity that much harder, to immerse ourselves in God's word, to remind ourselves regularly of God's good promises. And so we had finished that discussion talking about some of the passages and some of the implications of those passages about divorce. Today I want us to step back Uh, once again, and look at that topic through three different passages in Scripture specifically. I want to read through those, kind of share some thoughts with those, give you some practical application uh, today as well. And so in looking at that topic, avoiding divorce, our summary sentence, we must know what the Bible says about divorce before we are ever tempted with the thoughts of divorce, because if we wait until our heart is bent towards divorce, we will surely read the Scriptures differently than they were intended. For our kids, it's important to know what the Bible teaches about divorce so we can hopefully avoid divorce later in life. It's been my experience that people who don't really know what God's word has to say about divorce, um, if they wait until difficulties arise in their marriage, uh, if they wait until there's temptation towards a, another figure in their life, another relationship in their life, if they wait until that point, to begin to look to see what God's word has to say about divorce, they're going to get it wrong just about every time. Um, That our hearts are going to lead us down a path based on false interpretation of scripture. We go to the scripture, we try to make it say what we need for it to say to justify the choices that we want to make. And so uh, my hope and prayer is that marriages are are solidified enough in this room where, where nobody is already at that point where where there's conversations or thoughts towards this. And so my hope is that in bringing this to our attention, we are doing so in, in, in a way that protects any of us from ever getting to that point, that we know what God's word has to say about divorce um, so that it protects us from future temptation to have thoughts about divorce. 
um, that we don't wait until our heart starts to be bent in that direction, that we, we go ahead and get our theology right about this now as a means of protection, um, that we get our theology right now so that we are able to offer immediate counsel to those closest to us. Because God forbid that a marriage in our church ever start to move in this direction and we have to rely upon men or women in our church to, to be tools of reconciliation, to go help uh, reconcile those marriages, that, that we are prepared and we're equipped to do so, that we know what God's word has to say about this topic and we can go with authority to address that. Um, that we can bring scripture to play uh, in the conversations that we're having, all right? As you're continuing to write that down, if you need to, let's look at those three passages that I want to draw our attention to, Matthew chapter 5 being the first one. We'll also look at Matthew chapter 19 and then 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. Um, And so Matthew chapter 5, I want to give you the context for all three of these passages and why the topic is even coming up. The first one that we're looking at here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. The context here, Jesus is teaching and he is, he's correcting misunderstanding about the Old Testament law. That God had given standards of holiness in the Old Testament and the Pharisees had twisted, perverted, changed, altered those standards for everyday life. And they had kind of reinterpreted that. And so there was a tradition about some of these things that had started to gain more weight than what God had actually said in his word about a whole host of topics. Um, so, so Jesus is, is redirecting the people back to what God actually said about some of these things uh, and, and really um, going against some of the traditional teachings of that time for how to interpret what God's word had said. So we understand this to be the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus is reinterpreting some of these things and helping people to, to better understand the intent behind what the law said. So this is where you, you get instructions about, hey, it's not, it's not enough that you could say, hey, I've never murdered anybody and, and then be content with the fact that all I'm ever is really angry with people in my heart. Like I hate people. I just don't ever carry it out towards murder, right? Jesus says, hey, the law says thou shalt not kill, but the idea there is that we don't, we don't harbor hatred towards others either, right? Like that has to get cleaned up in our life, that we don't commit adultery, but that we also don't lust for others in our heart either, right? So Jesus is helping them to understand the heart behind some of the things that the Old Testament law has to say, and he does so in the area of divorce as well. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 31, it says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, so these are, these are difficult teachings, difficult sayings by Jesus because this is not how they were functioning. This is not how they were acting. This was not the norm for their culture at this time. Jesus is having to say, hey, you guys have gotten it wrong, right? Like you're acting on the idea that if you divorce your wife or you want to be done with your wife, you have to give her a certificate of divorce to sever that relationship. But Jesus is saying, hey, The idea of divorcing your wife or divorcing your husband, it ought to be reserved only for the idea of sexual immorality. And that if it's not, if it's anything other than that, adultery is happening. You're you're making each other commit adultery by having this severed relationship. So the Pharisees in their mindset, it was, okay, 
let's let's not commit adultery. Let's 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 have the divorce happen, and then we can go do what we want to do with the person that we've met, right? And if we don't if we don't divorce them, well, then we're committing adultery. So their 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 thinking was was flawed because in their mind it was, let's get divorced so that we don't commit adultery, right? Like they wanted to be with somebody else, and so the answer was. Hey, if we get divorced, we can resolve this. We cannot commit adultery, and we can go be with who we want to be. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You think you're avoiding adultery, but you're creating adultery. You're creating adultery, not just now what you do, but you're causing your spouse to potentially commit this as well. Okay, so Jesus is trying to fix their thinking. Hey, you're, you're flawed. This, again, goes back to the idea that they were trying to make Scripture say things that was beneficial to what they wanted to do right? So, oh, there's a certificate of divorce. Hey, let's use this, and then we can go do what we want to do. Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. Like, that certificate of divorce is only for the sexual immorality. If that occurs, then it's permitted. It's permitted for you to do this. Anything else, and you're causing adultery to happen, okay? Real short passage there, but one that's really key to our understanding. Matthew chapter 19, Verses 1 through 12 is another key passage here. Now, let me back up just real quick. Again, Jesus is addressing their, their traditions, and the people even pick up on the fact that there's something different about what Jesus is saying than the other religious leaders at that time. Kind of at the end of some of his teaching, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So they, they pick up real fast that, okay, Jesus is using Scripture here. Jesus is teaching Scripture. He's not trying to apply Scripture in ways that, that works for us. He is teaching what Scripture has to say. He's doing so with authority. Okay, their standards have been lowered. Jesus is raising those standards back up. Here's what divorce is supposed to be. Here's what, what it looks like in a permissible way if one ever gets to that point in their life. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is going to be questioned by the Pharisees about his views on divorce and marriage, and it's done so in a way where it's not really appropriate. It's not them coming in humility wanting to know these things. It's them coming wanting to kill him. The, the, the setting for where this happens, it, it's where uh, Herod's authority was the same Herod that John the Baptist had attacked for his adultery and his divorce. And Herod said, I don't like what you're saying. And he cut John the Baptist's head off, right? So the Pharisees say, hey, let's get Jesus talking about this topic as well to see if we can't spark um, retaliation towards him as well. If we got rid of John the Baptist because of his stance on divorce, let's see if we can't get rid of Jesus as well. So they come asking questions, but not really to have answers. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. 
But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. We'll talk about the disciples' response to Jesus' response to the Pharisees a little bit later. But again, Jesus is reminding them that his teachings about marriage, divorce, remarriage, all of that is rooted in God's original plan, his original design in Genesis. When sin enters into the world, there are changes that are then implemented, permissible because of the hardness of man's heart. Right, Like not the original design, not God's desires and plans, but because of the hardness of man's heart, God comes in and intervenes and shows some mercy and some grace in situations like this. Again, remember, and we'll talk about this uh, here in just a minute, that the Old Testament law was adultery results in death. That that there was no need for divorce really because if your spouse commits adultery, you just just put them to death, right? Um, And so... Even the permissibility of divorce is God's grace in allowing someone to live, to live long enough to even potentially repent of their sin, okay? 1 Corinthians 7, context for this passage, and I'm reading all these because we're going to reference these and not come back to them specifically every time we reference them, so I wanted to kind of read them all together so that we can reference those. 1 Corinthians 7, again, this passage contextually Paul is trying to help the Corinthians who come from a very immoral culture, trying to help them understand and navigate how do things change now that we're Christians, right? Like we need to understand relationships with husband and wife and and what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, because we're all really just messed up in our thinking because of how we've been raised in this culture. So Paul's trying to correct their thinking, okay? Concerning the matters about which he wrote, it's good for a man not to have uh, relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Even there, there, there's an understanding that, man, there, there may be divorces that happen that are not based on sexual immorality. And when those things happen, remarriage is not permitted. Remarriage is not permitted. Um, So we'll even talk about that in some of our Q&A, where there may be a situation where um, maybe divorce divorce is going to happen. It's not based on sexual immorality um, that a person has to kind of concede to it. But in conceding to it, 
remarriage is off the table for right now. Like the goal is reconciliation, okay? Because um, he says, the wife should not separate, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. The idea there is that she doesn't cut off the ability to be reconciled to her husband. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Just to clarify, when Paul says, I'm saying this, but the, but uh, or the Lord's saying this, not me, or I'm saying it, not the Lord, he's differentiating between quoting Jesus. He's not differentiating between inspired and uninspired scripture, okay? So when he says, this is the Lord saying this, not me. It's not that he even disagrees with it. He's just saying, this isn't, this isn't me talking, this is Jesus talking. When he says, this is me talking and not Jesus, it's still inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's just that Jesus didn't directly say this. This is coming new and fresh from Paul, okay? If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, he consents to live with her. She should not divorce him, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? All right, then we skip down to verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. His interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let him marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well. He who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. All right, so those are our important passages, kind of shared with you the context for them. As a means of introduction, we'll jump into our outline here really quickly. I told you earlier, a good theology of marriage and divorce is needed prior to our hearts being tempted with this, but it's also needed because false teaching is coming, right? We've been talking in the context of revelation, deception, false teaching is on the horizon. More and more, we expect it to get worse and worse until Jesus comes back. 1 Timothy 4, 3, 
Um, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insanity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Right? Like, like we have to be even be prepared that false teaching is coming about marriage, about divorce, and how all those things should be handled. Okay, so we have to be engulfed in what we know what God's word has to say about this topic. Good theology is needed about marriage and divorce because we will be fed something that is false if we're not careful. God's plan from the very beginning is a monogamous, lifelong marriage to be the only pattern of union between men and women. That's, that's the original plan, that, that there would be a monogamous, you and me forever type of relationship between men and women. Divorce was never intended. Adam and Eve were created without the option Right? Think about that. There was no option for Adam and Eve to divorce and marry somebody else. There was nobody else. Right? So even in what Jesus says from the very beginning, let's go back, let's see how God created things. He created them without the ability to divorce. Right? God never had that as an intent, never planned on that type of thing. God's feelings about divorce are very clear from Malachi chapter 2, verse 13. The second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Why is God not accepting us? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with the portion of the spirit in their union and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Right? God, God has very strong feelings about divorce. God hates divorce. He doesn't want divorce. Okay? Because of that, and because it destroys his creation, remember Matthew nineteen six, what God has joined together, let no man separate, to then engage in divorce, like the burden falls upon the individual to show why that's the best option, okay? Because it's not part of God's original plan. It, it contradicts God's desires, and, 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 and he hates this type of act. It's a breaking of something that he's created. There's permissible reasons for it, but again, the burden now falls upon the individual to be able to show from Scripture why this is the best thing or why this is the right thing given this situation. We should fight hard, get this, we should fight hard to never be the cause for a divorce, ours or someone else's. Just let that settle in for a minute. God hates this. This is not God's plan. We should fight hard in our own marriage to make sure that our spouse never pursues a divorce. We should fight hard in our interaction with the opposite sex that someone else doesn't want to pursue a divorce because of the interaction they've had with us. Man, this can be a strong temptation at work, maybe just from the guy side, but I've talked with enough guys to know, hey, I would never, I would never cheat on my wife. I would, never, I would never do anything like that. But to hear or sometimes even see the ways that guys can interact with, with, with females at work to be, very, be very flirtatious, to be very relational in such a way where it creates a longing in somebody else's heart for you to where they're now discontent in their marriage, man, that, that, that is really teetering on something that is, that is completely evil in God's eyes. 
to cause someone else to long for a divorce because of the interaction they're having with you. Man, we need to fight hard to protect our marriages and fight hard to protect other people's marriages in how we interact with others. God takes marital unfaithfulness seriously. Um, So obviously he takes purity seriously in general, but if we're talking about a boy and a girl before they're ever married engaging in activity, the Old Testament penalty was uh, scourging. If it was married people who were breaking the covenant, it was death. Both were considered serious, but one was more serious because there was a covenant relationship between a man and a woman that was being broken by one of them stepping outside of the marriage. God takes marital unfaithfulness very seriously. Um, Divorce, we talked about being God's mercy for adultery. Um, Matthew 119 gives us the story of Joseph, right? Like Joseph believes that Mary has been unfaithful to him. What does the passage say? It says that he had decided in his heart to put her away quietly. He wasn't going to have her killed. He wasn't going to publicly humiliate her. He was going to exercise his right in unfaithfulness to divorce her quietly. Okay, you don't want to be with me. You want to be with someone else. I'm going to divorce you, but I'm not going to kill you. I have every right to by the law to bring that upon you. I'm going to use the, the, the grace, the mercy, and I'm going to divorce you quietly. Okay, that was God's act of mercy to even allow that. All right, so let's jump into our notes here, and then we'll try to leave some time for Q&A at the end. Number one, embrace marriage despite its difficulty. Embrace marriage despite its difficulty. For our kids, even though marriage is difficult, it's worth it. Embrace marriage despite its difficulty. And marriage is difficult right? Like talk to any of our married couples here and we'll talk to you about the difficulties of marriage. But it's worth it, right? Like God has given a good, great gift to man and woman to be married together, to enjoy that relationship, to, to see that relationship flourish with children and, and, and to see all that can become of a relationship between a man and a woman representing the, the picture of, of Christ and the church together. It's a great gift, but it's difficult at times. The truth that we need to, to kind of hang our hat on here is that while marriage is hard and the expectations for staring, staying married are high, the only ones who should avoid marriage are those who are genetically unable to marry, those who are physically unable to marry, or those who are spiritually gifted and do not need to marry. All right, this is where I told you I wanted to go back to the disciples' response to Jesus. Right, like Jesus raises the standard and kind of freaks the disciples out because the norm had been when you get tired of your spouse, use the certificate of divorce and move on. Go get you a different spouse. Like that had become kind of the cultural norm at that time. And Jesus raises the standard and says, man, unless sexual immorality has happened, you don't get to do this. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, marries another, commits adultery. So you can't divorce your wife and go marry somebody else and it be okay, Jesus says. You're used to that, like you think that's okay because everybody's doing it around you, not okay. The disciples respond and say, if this is the case, man, it's better not to marry. Because I think they had become so used to seeing people grow tired and weary of being with somebody and then moving on. It's like, 
man, how do you really stay together forever? How do you really stay together until you die? Because we're not seeing that modeled very well, potentially. So they're saying, maybe, maybe you just don't get married. Like, like, maybe it's too hard, so you just don't even do it. And Jesus responds and says, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. There are eunuchs who have been made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. We won't go into strong detail here, but what we're talking about here are people that were unable to perform from birth because of a birth defect. Like Like they can't function in a marriage the way that they're supposed to because of something from birth. You also had this, this group of people who had been, who had been surgically altered or, or physically tortured or, or physically uh, handled in such a way where they could no longer perform in a marriage the way that they were supposed to, right? So they're, they're, they're classified as eunuchs, like they can't, they can't do what they're supposed to as a husband or a wife in the, in the marriage relationship. So it would not make sense for them to be married because they can't function like they're supposed to. And then Jesus says there are those who have made themselves this way for the kingdom of heaven. This is what Paul's talking about. Somebody who says, you know what? I'm not going to pursue marriage. I'm going to stay single so that I don't have the anxieties that come from marriage and having to take care of a spouse. I'm going to be completely devoted to the Lord. Paul says that's a, that's a special person that's gifted in such a way. So Jesus says, look, the only people who should say, I'm not going to get married are people who can't get married or people who don't need to get married because they're gifted to serve the Lord in that way. Everybody else should move forward with it, even though it's hard, embrace the difficulty, embrace the great gift that marriage is. There's some really bad reasons that I think people avoid marriage today, and it, and it continues to cause difficulties to stay pure because marriage is not being pursued. Um, and, and all of us probably experienced this as we were, those of us that, aren't, that are married experienced this probably at some time where we put way too much value on physical appearance over an individual's character, right? Like, like we're looking for something specific physically, and until we find that, we're not willing to pursue marriage. All the while, there may be godly people all around us who have the same marital desires as we do, but because they're not physically what we're looking for, they're, they're not really uh, on our radar. That's a, that's, a, that's a poor reason because physical appearances can radically change in, in the blink of an eye, right? Like, like what happens when you marry somebody based on how they look physically and then they don't look that way shortly after marriage, right? Like you don't get a do-over. You don't get to say, hey, you don't look the way that you did when we got married, so now we got to do something different because that, that's not what I agreed to for life. I agreed to something different. If that's the case, if physical appearance can change so quickly, we don't need to put too much emphasis on that as to who we choose to marry. Uh, selfishness of not wanting life to be interrupted, right? Like the longer you stay single, the, longer, the, the harder it is to bring somebody into your life. You start to develop habits and, and plans and, and, and schedules that, man, it's, it's imposing on somebody to come in and kind of mess that up. And it was hard on me having been on my own and single for a while when Lauren and I got married to now have to, to make plans around somebody else's schedule as well. I had conditioned myself that it's just me, it's just me, it's just me. I do what I want to do. Now I'm doing it with somebody, and that became a difficult part early on in our marriage for me to make that adjustment. Um, lastly, I would say that a bad reason to avoid marriage is 
the quest for the perfect mate. <clears throat> you could hear this and say, okay, I got to stay, stay with somebody for life. Man, they better be darn near perfect for me to make that type of commitment because that's for life. Man, it's not about finding somebody who's absolutely perfect either, right? Because you're going to be on a quest for the rest of your life and never find it. It's about being, being willing to pursue that individual and to invest in that individual and to ultimately be used by God as a sanctifying tool in that individual because they're not perfect. And God wants to move them towards perfection by using you as their spouse to do it. All right? Um, reasons to be cautious with marriage, number one. Reasons to be cautious with marriage. And it all focuses back on the fall. The fall makes marriage hard. Makes marriage hard. First of all, because of the curse of the husband. Think about the curse that's upon the husband. He must fight for time and energy to care for his home due to the increased effort required by his job. Let me say that again. A husband has to fight for the time and the energy to care for his home, to care for his wife, to care for his kids. Why? Because we have to give increased effort at our jobs because of the curse. Right? God says, hey, Adam, the curse for you is that you were supposed to take care of the earth, and now the earth is going to reject your care. It is going to be more difficult for you to care for the earth because of the thorns and the weeds. It's just going to be harder. You're going to you're gonna have to work harder for it. You're going to have to work harder at your job. So as, as husbands, man, we're working hard at our jobs, harder than, than we were intended to have to even because of the curse, and now we have to fight for the time and the energy to take care of our home when we get there. And we, can, we, we come home tired because of sin, and now we have to work hard to invest in, in, the, in the lives of our wife and our kids. Same would be true for, for women that are working, right? Like the, like the earth rejects our ability to do a job. It requires us to work harder, makes it difficult on our marriages because we have to give extra attention to, to the care that we're supposed to for this earth. We have a job to do, specifically as husbands in Ephesians 5, talking about how we're to give the care to our wife. We have so much to do with the wives that God has given to us. We don't have time for another wife or another mistress to be giving our attention to. Our time is already limited. In fact, we've, in our accountability group, we've talked before, like, I don't even know how people find time sometimes for an affair, right? Like, like my schedule is so difficult, I don't even see how the enemy fits that in sometimes. Man, like, like our requirements to work hard for our families, to take care of our kids and our wives at home, it, should, it, it probably shouldn't leave a whole lot of time for that. If we're doing what we're supposed to be doing faithfully, man, it kind of closes off those opportunities to go find something else. The curse for the wife is that she has to fight to submit to her husband due to her desire to control him. Back in Genesis chapter 3, part of the, the, the results of sin. There's also the idea that we have to learn contentment. We have to learn contentment. Paul talks about this, learning the secret to contentment, to be okay with whether I'm flourishing or whether I'm in poverty, he talks about in Philippians, right? Like he says, I've learned the secret to being content. Because in Exodus chapter 20 and in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus gives commands about us not having wandering eyes that look towards someone else's spouse and covet and desire someone else than what God has given to us. Marriage is hard because we have to learn contentment. 
And if left to ourselves, if we're not fighting for contentment, our eyes will wander and desire something else. There's also that potential of a hardened heart because Jesus says, because of your hardened heart, Moses permitted divorce. Desires for divorce flow from an unchecked heart. Hebrews 3.13 talks about how if we're not careful, if we don't have people speaking truth into our lives, there's a good chance that sin will harden our hearts and lead us to do things that we never thought possible. Never thought about, Nobody gets married and plans on getting a divorce. Like nobody's standing at their, their marriage ceremony thinking, five years tops, and then I'm out. I, I think most everybody honestly enters into it thinking, for better or for worse, until we die. And then at some point along the way, the heart got hard in an area, right? Something went unchecked in an area. This is why the church is so important. The church is so important. No matter where you live, immediately getting yourself into a church is so important because the church is the way that things get checked. The relationships within the church are the way that things get checked so that the heart doesn't become hard and divorce isn't necessary. Marriage is hard because of these things, but there's reasons to be eager for marriage as well. It's a good gift from God. It's a good gift from God. A few things, they all start with P's here to make it easy. Um, it, it's, God's, uh, it's God's gift of purity and protection for us. 1 Corinthians 7, 9. That, that we pursue marriage because of the desires that he's given to us, and it's a way for us to use those desires appropriately. It's a way to keep those desires in check and not to, to use them for sinful purposes. It's a way for, for purity and protection. In fact, 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. Every temptation that comes upon us, there's a way of escape. For this specific area, the way of escape is marriage. It's a way to be protected. There's also the, the gift of procreation. Genesis 1.28, the, the command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and to multiply. That takes place in marriage. Partnership, Genesis 2.18, that Adam was alone and needed a partner, and God created a partner specifically for him gifted in ways that he was not. And so we ta- we've talked about in Genesis the difference between men and women and, and the uniqueness of the two and how they come together to flourish together. Uh, pleasure is an aspect of marriage, right? See the book of Song of Solomon. Um, provision is a blessing of marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28 through 33, the, the idea there of um, our marriages representing the gospel and Christ and the church, but the idea that kind of flows from that is this self-giving, self-denial relationship between each other. In Ephesians 5, 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Right? We're taking care of each other, provision that God gives through marriage. Lots of reasons to be eager towards marriage. Number two, avoid divorce if at all possible. Right? So what we're saying is unless there's something from birth, unless there's some type of physical issue that has happened since you were born, or unless you just feel extremely gifted to remain single, all of us should be looking towards marriage. Okay, so, so, we, so we pursue marriage, we get into marriage, and then we avoid divorce if at all possible. For our kids, God's desire is that husbands and wives not divorce. 
The truth here is that while God has communicated permissible grounds for divorce, he never commands divorce, thus reminding us that divorce should be avoided whenever possible. He permits it, but he doesn't command it. And that's important to remember because if we're not careful, even sexual immorality might happen in a marriage and the other spouse jumps on it. Like, boom, here's the reason I've been looking for. Which is probably an indicator that the marriage was broken on both sides before the sexual immorality happened. Right? Like, we should never get to the point where we're looking for the permissible reason to divorce. At that point, our heart's probably off. needs to be corrected. God permits it, but he doesn't command it. Meaning, just because sexual morality happens doesn't mean that you have to go get a divorce. There, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of stories of, of this happening and reconciliation happening and divorce not happening. And those should be celebrated. I would also caution you not to think that if sexual morality has happened and someone pursues a divorce, that they're lesser spiritually than the stories that are success, right? Like, like nobody should be viewed as being at fault or lesser of a Christian or they didn't love their spouse enough if they pursued a divorce when it was permissible by Scripture, okay? Um, and I do think, and we'll talk about this maybe more if we have time, the, I think the permissibility of divorce is also tied to the unrepentance of the one who has committed the act, right? Like, I don't know that I could prove 100% from Scripture that if you had a spouse who had been unfaithful to his spouse comes back in, in obvious repentance, the other spouse says, nope, I'm out. Like, you've, you've broken the covenant. I don't know that I could prove from Scripture that they can't pursue the divorce, but I don't think that's what God really has in mind here. The idea here is that someone who has broken it and is not really repentant of it, there being permissibility for the other to be no longer enslaved to that relationship. I mean, if you've got somebody who responds to Matthew 18, right, like people go and get him and he is broken over this, like the Holy Spirit brings conviction over this, man, I would encourage any spouse, hey, I don't know that I can't tell you that you can't get a divorce, but man, I would extremely encourage you to be cautious in that because you've got an individual who is broken over their sin and wanting to restore that relationship and it's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult and it's going to be tough and yeah I, I think you could still make an argument from scripture you're permitted to divorce but man like let's make sure that we're 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 operating off the heart of what jesus was saying there it's communicated that's permissible i don't think it's ever commanded it should be avoided whenever possible okay Number one, God's minimal allowances for divorce demand a careful examination before settling on a divorce. What I mean by that is that God is so specific that it's so few, of a, so few situations that are really permitted for divorce, it really demands a lot of caution before settling on a divorce. Like be, be slow and careful in encouraging someone to a divorce or if you ever find yourself in a situation where divorce is on the table. I think scripture is clear that marriage is sinlessly dissolved. I don't know if that's a word, but it didn't come up with red squiggly lines. So it's sinlessly dissolved in three cases. One, by death, Romans 7, 2 through 3. She's bound to her husband until he dies. So 
Spouse dies, free to remarry. I'm no longer enslaved. Sinlessly dissolved by death. It's sinlessly dissolved by adultery. Matthew chapter 19, 9. It's sinlessly dissolved if an unbelieving spouse leaves. 1 Corinthians 7, 15. That's where Paul says, look, if you're, you find yourself, you get saved, you now find yourself, hey, I'm, I'm married to somebody who's not a Christian. Stay in that marriage as long as the unbeliever will stay. Don't seek a divorce with them. Stay, you may win them to Jesus. Stay as long as they'll, they'll stay. And when they decide to leave, there's permissibility in the divorce. If you mishandle divorce, it can result in adultery. We've already seen Multiple passages here, but Deuteronomy 24 is another one, 1 through 4. Mark 10, 10 through 12 um, are passages that reiterate some of the things that we've already seen. This kind of goes back to what I was just saying. I think divorce is most permissible when the sinning partner refuses to repent or be restored. As a last resort, when the unrepentant adulterer finally exhausts the patience of the innocent spouse. Let me say that again. In cases of of sexual immorality, divorce is most permissible. Like, I think somebody can move forward with a divorce and be most confident that that God can can feel permissible about it, that, that it's most permissible when the sinning partner, the unfaithful spouse, refuses to repent, refuses to be restored, and that divorce then becomes a last resort when that unbelieving spouse kind of exhausts the patience of the innocent spouse. And, and there may come times where that's, that's appropriate. And I know like a lot of us, you know, marriage is going good right now and we'd love to say, hey, never, 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 never. But you bring kids into the equation and to say never, 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 there, there may be scenarios where, I mean, it's, it's absolutely needed at this point. Right? Like, like if, if I say never, never, never and try to stick to that with my wife, let's say Lauren becomes unfaithful and is unrepentant, but I say, you know what? I'm staying in this and you stay in this house and I'm going to love you back to Jesus and, and we're going to fix this. And, and she's like, nope, 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 but I love the security. I love not having to work. I'll keep living here and I'll keep gallivanting around with my men. And she starts bringing men to my house with my kids there. I'm going to tell you, hey, I could have said never, never, never to my wife, but at some point I'm going to have to say, you know what? Me and the kids, we got to go. We got to go because this isn't okay. And my kids are in danger because you're unrepentant. I can just tell you that's not happening with Lauren. Like, <laughs> that's, not, that's not ever happening with Lauren. Like, if my, my heart goes unchecked, I'm the, I'm, I, I fall into that type of thing, right? Like, I'm, I'm the one that would be unfaithful, and, and it's God's grace that he's going to keep me faithful, right? Um, so, so that's an extreme case to, to paint Lauren in that picture. Um, but that's a case where you'd have to say, Man, don't don't try to don't try to be the, the the great Christian here. Like you're putting people in jeopardy here by not by not moving away from this. Okay, so minimal allowances, careful attention before settling on a divorce. Okay, um, number two, God's uh, minimal allowances for divorce demand wise choices when getting married. I think I heard somebody in one of the groups saying this in response to the person that you married being different down the road. How important it is to make a good choice at the, at the beginning. There's clear 
indicators in Scripture that we should commit to those who share the same spiritual values and priorities as, as us, right? Second Corinthians 6 talks about not being married to an unbeliever. Let me just, let me just give this word of advice to the, to the singles in our, in our church right now. When you get to the point where you feel like you have met the individual that you want to pursue marriage with, you couldn't be a bigger fool if you were not seeking the counsel of others about that decision. Like, like you can't be a bigger fool than to choose a spouse for life and not ask the opinions of others that are closest to you in your life. Like, like at that point, don't let your heart be the driving force for your decision-making about who you're going to spend your life with because your heart's deceitful, right? Even with the Holy Spirit living inside of you, even with you being sanctified, your heart will still at times grow hard and be bent towards what your flesh wants to do. You couldn't be a bigger fool than to choose a spouse without seeking the guidance and counsel of the people closest to you in your life. You couldn't be a bigger fool than to to hear the counsel and it be contrary to what you want to do and you still say, you know what, I'm still going to do it. I love her or I love him and I don't care what everybody else says. Because they obviously see something that causes them concern as to whether or not this can last until death. Man, seek the counsel. Those of you that aren't married, just about everybody in here I think wants to be married that's not married, that's not been married before. Man, seek the counsel of other people in your life before you make that decision. Because God's minimal allowances for divorce demand a really good choice. That's where the church is really important again. Church is really important again. Because if you make a bad choice, the church is going to need to be there to help support you and to help go after your spouse. You're going to need a church that's willing to do Matthew 18 church discipline because if your spouse starts to wander, you're going to need help in getting them back. All right, number three, allow remarriage when permissible. So embrace marriage despite its difficulty. Avoid divorce if at all possible. Allow remarriage when it's permissible. For our kids, sometimes divorce happens and God can still do good things. Man, I remember my life was rocked even as a young adult when my, my parents got a divorce. Like I never thought I would be in the group of people who their parents were divorced. Like it was always this other group of people that had to go through divorce. Not me and my family, not ever. And to then be grouped in the category of those who had been affected by divorce, like it was just, it was just hard for me to wrap my brain around. And that's becoming far more the norm than when I was a kid. And I can just tell you, parents at Trinity, we have so many broken families at Trinity. I mean, these are, the, these are supposed to be the good guys, right? Like the, the ones that are choosing Christian education, the ones that go to church, and we have a countless number of broken families at Trinity. It's becoming more the norm. It's becoming more the norm. And, and, the, and the thing that I would want our kids to hear this morning, for our, for our young kids to hear, is that even if, if, if they're ever faced with a divorce situation, God still does good. Like we've, we've got a lot of us in here who our parents are divorced, and we can testify to the fact that God still does good things in the midst of that type of sin. When one spouse is not doing what they're supposed to be doing, and a divorce occurs, God still can step in and do some mighty great things in those situations. And sometimes he does it through remarriage. The truth is that the only time remarriage is permissible after divorce is when the divorce was based on permissible grounds in Scripture and all hopes of reconciliation with the previous spouse have been abandoned. The only time remarriage is permissible after divorce is 
is when the divorce was based on permissible grounds in Scripture and all hopes of reconciliation with the previous spouse have been abandoned. And this is, this is a key point because you could find yourself in a situation where your spouse is unfaithful, unrepentant. You say, you know what? Pursuing a divorce, like this is the only thing that makes sense for our family. This is the right thing to do, the best thing to do. I believe Scripture permits it. The counsel that I would still offer to that individual is, yes, you can do this. Just know in doing so, if your spouse repents the day after your wedding, are you going to be okay with that? And I told my mom this. My, my mom begged our church to pray, 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 pray for my dad to repent. And he didn't, and he didn't, and he didn't, and then she met a man. My dad had been unfaithful, so she was permitted to, to, to be divorced. She met a man. Um, shortly after the divorce was finalized, they began to date and, and started talking about marriage. And I, and I told mom, I said, mom, I said, you're, you're biblically permitted to do this. Just know that you said for a long time to our church, you fully believed that my dad, your husband, was going to repent of his sins and come back. Just know that that still may happen but you have to be okay with the fact that you've married somebody else because you don't get to divorce him and then go back to my dad. And I told my mom this. I said, if dad repents and becomes the greatest man ever again in your eyes, you don't get to go back to him. And if you're okay with dad, if you're okay with a scenario where dad gets things right, comes back to our family and you're married, if you're okay with that scenario, you've been released from that marriage and, and you can pursue this. But if you're not okay with that scenario, I said, I said, you don't need to marry this man. You need to keep holding out hope that dad comes back. You, you, you give up hope of reconciliation with the previous spouse in order to pursue remarriage. All right, number one, remarriage is only permissible if the door, divorce was permissible. If one is separated from their spouse for other illegitimate reasons, they are to remain s- single. This is where I would say, And this is where, like, the, 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 uh, the scenario of abuse is really difficult because Scripture doesn't include that here as a permissible reason for divorce. Intentional or not intentional, it's not included there. Um, I know my dad regretted for the, still regrets it to this day, um, counseling a woman in our church to stay with her abusive husband. She went missing and um, eventually was found dead by her husband. Um, and so he was radically rocked over the fact that he had taught so harshly, not harshly, but taught so, he had taught so faithfully to what Scripture says that he, he couldn't reconcile what have I done in encouraging her to stay, right? Um, this is where I would say there may be times where a person has to separate from their spouse, even though I'm hesitant to say that because Scripture says the only reason you shouldn't be physically together is if you've both agreed upon it and it's for a time of prayer, right? So we're having to go against that Scripture to say, hey, you have to separate for safety reasons. And even if legally a divorce is necessary for the sake of child custody and all that type of stuff, even if there had to be a divorce that was not based on sexual immorality, it's very clear from Scripture remarriage is not possible. It's just not possible. It, it was not on permissible grounds. You can't remarry. So even if I had to encourage somebody very reluctantly 
out of, out, of, out of concerns for safety for the spouse or for the kids to separate and then potentially, and we talked about this as elders this past week, to potentially even have to divorce for legal reasons to provide the protection, I'd have to counsel that person. That I don't think remarriage is possible until that person has been unfaithful, until that's unreconcilable. Okay, so I would I would have to really pursue that and, and really think through that very carefully. And I'm going to kind of end with this today that there's a lot of gray areas that aren't addressed in Scripture. And we just have to apply the principles that are in Scripture to scenarios that aren't dictated in Scripture and try to make sure that we're trying to be true to Scripture, not true to emotions, but true to what Scripture has to say. All right. Um, when divorce is permitted, remarriage is permitted. When divorce is forbidden, remarriage is forbidden. I think that's very clear in Scripture. Number two, remarriage is only advisable if remaining single is determined to be unwise. Because Paul says, hey, you've been divorced, or hey, your spouse has died, or hey, your unbelieving spouse has left you, don't automatically think that you're just absolutely supposed to get remarried. It may be that you're supposed to stay single, that that it's a gift from God now for you to serve the rest of your life in a a single format. But Paul says if if you reevaluate it and you say, you know what, singleness is not for me still, like I still need to be married, it's still the best protection for me, then he says, man, you're released, you're released. If you have a biblical, permissible divorce, you are released to pursue remarriage, all right? Marriage and remarriage is the norm. Singleness is the gift, okay? So we should expect people that are biblically permitted to divorce that they will probably remarry, and it's okay, and it's, and, and it's advisable, and it's appropriate based on Scripture. Christians who were previously married before becoming Christians, they should stay single or get married, Christians who are married to Christians should stay together. And if they're divorced, they should remain unmarried to reconcile, unless it's a permissible reason. Christians who are married to non-Christians who will stay with them should stay together as long as they can. Christians who are married to non-Christians who won't stay should let them leave. And this is, I want to make this point. Um, We should never encourage somebody to compromise their faith to keep their unbelieving spouse to stay. Right, like, like it could be that we are so God hates divorce that we encourage a believing spouse to compromise areas of their faith to keep that spouse there. Like, hey, I don't want you to go to church as much as you want to go to. Okay, honey, like I'll back off. Like I'll only go once a week and then I'll be at home with you the rest of the time. Like the idea here is that if he doesn't want to stay with a believing spouse, let him go, let her go. Do not compromise. Do not compromise your faith to keep a spouse to stay. If they want to leave, they want to leave. Let them go. And Paul's very clear, it's, it's not on you. You're released from that. And that, that's hard, that's difficult because you're going to love that spouse. You're going to love that spouse. That person's going to love that spouse that you're trying to counsel maybe. Hey, don't compromise your faith to keep an unbelieving spouse to stay. Okay, um, let's go application here. And then we'll talk just a little bit of Q&A here to wrap up. Uh, application. If you have experienced an illegitimate divorce, confess, repent, and move on. Jesus is faithful to forgive us. Like I said, I don't think that's the case in in our church, Um, but if you have friends, family, or if that ever does occur here in this church, I mean, this is not the, the unforgivable sin, right? Like, we confess, we repent, we move on. He's faithful to forgive us of our sins. Where sin abounds, grace abounds more. So nobody needs to have this hanging over them for the rest of their life. I got a divorce, or I know somebody that got a divorce, and it was not biblically permissible. 
man, we confess, we repent, we move on. Jesus is faithful to forgive us. Number two, understand the principles of Scripture regarding divorce because they will need to be applied in unclear situations. Man, rarely are we going to get the textbook situation that we just say, oh, this is what Scripture has to say about this. It's going to be the, hey, he hasn't physically um, stepped out of the marriage, but, but um, he, he's looking at stuff, he's giving himself to stuff. Um, what, what should this spouse do? Right, it, they're, they're, the abuse is going to be brought up. Different things that we don't have a verse for it. We have to take scriptural principles and apply it to the situation. All right, um, I'll give you guys a chance just to ask some questions here uh, briefly. Told you we we kind of talked a little bit about the the abuse scenario, and and that may be something that people in our church have dealt with and have had to wrestle through. And um, would certainly encourage anybody in that type of situation or knowing somebody in that type of situation to come talk to the elders. We'd love to talk to you about that. Um, I, I think certainly the guidance needs to be that legal, uh, legal things are done um, to protect the spouse that's in that type of situation. Um, that if there's abuse happening, authorities need to be notified. Um, and, and sometimes that helps take care of that situation versus divorce or not a divorce. And so um, I certainly think those things need to be pursued appropriately. Um, I think in the area of lust and some of the things that lust introduces in a, in, a, in a relationship, so a spouse finds out that another spouse, that their spouse is looking at things that they shouldn't be looking at. Um, I think if that's a pattern of unrepentance, that the door is certainly open for a permissible divorce in that type of situation. If that marriage, if that relationship, the physical relationship is broken because of that activity and it's unrepentant, there's no desire to change. Um, there, there's people that I've read that I, that I, I, I hold in, in high regard that would also say that's, that's an, un, uh, an unrepentant type situation like that. There's permissibility there potentially for a divorce. Now, I don't think spouse walks in, finds out that their spouse has been looking at something I need to go get a divorce right now. I don't think that's the case. Again, I think the the permissibility is the unrepentance that the other spouse demonstrates. One scenario that that I was thinking through is that if you had a believing spouse, unbelieving spouse, unbelieving spouse leaves, is unfaithful, whatever, and then wants to repent of that sin only and come back after a divorce, that the, the, the Christian is not permitted to marry that spouse because they're an unbeliever. So you married them, you got saved, they left you, they divorced you, now they want to come back. You're still in love with them, but they're an unbeliever. Now we have to apply scripture that says you can't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Even though they were repentant of that sin, they're an unbeliever. And, and I don't think they should be, um, the remarriage should happen. We talked about being careful with the idea of separation. I think I mistakenly have even thought Man, I would counsel somebody to separate from their husband, separate from their wife. Um, that I think we have to be real careful with that too because if unfaithfulness has not happened, that is a recipe for unfaithfulness to happen based on what Paul says too. Um, so I th- I'd be very careful with encouraging an abandonment type of removal, um, especially if there's not ongoing work happening. You know, if it's just, hey, you need to move out and we'll see where things are in, in a couple of months. Like there has to be active uh, reconciliation trying to happen between a spouse if they're separated or else that's a recipe for unfaithfulness um, to occur there as well. Uh, questions that you guys might have that we can kind of wrap up with today. Uh, again, my desire in talking about this 
is to protect our marriages, for us to see how high God's standards are in this area. But two, to equip you, because if you're like me, you're going you're gonna to have people coming to you at your workplace wanting advice, and I want to make sure that we're giving good, godly, gospel advice about this and, and leading people in the right direction. Is there anything that you've encountered, anything that's going on in your life right now that, that you would want to ask about as far as how, how, should I sh- how should I encourage somebody in this type of situation, something like that? Where would you go in scripture for number one? So when, when we had um, discussion group, it was what, what um, situations have you had where you didn't know how to help somebody that came to you for advice? And so that was the advice that I gave, but didn't really have a good place in scripture to go. Where like if somebody has had an illegitimate divorce. Right. Um, to have, because that's what I said, Jesus will forgive that and mm-hmm. you repent and that marriage becomes now sanctified for the use of God. But the response from the friend was, no, Jesus said it's adultery and it needs to end. Where would you go to? Does that make sense? Because the, because the marriage was illegitimate, did they need to divorce and separate because of that? Um, yeah, so I definitely wouldn't encourage the divorce in that situation. Um, I would certainly have conversations with both spouses about their salvation. Um, because depending on where that person goes to church, for somebody to have an illegitimate divorce, it ought to result in that person being treated like an unbeliever if the church handles it appropriately, right? So Matthew 18, somebody is in sin, you go get them, you bring more people, you bring the church. If they continue to say no, the end result is you now treat them as an unbeliever, right? Um, So if that person, you know, light goes off in their head, hey, I've been wronged, the idea there is that they may, their confession may not just be a confession of that sin, it may be a confession of the gospel, like I need to be saved. Because I rejected so much admonition to come back, so I would certainly have gospel conversations too as to, man, what what led to such a, a rebellious move, and now you recognize that 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 was wrong, um, that there may be a, a, a salvation that's taking place there, um, but I don't think that that divorcing and going back is appropriate, um, even from what Deuteronomy talks about, where you've you've left and then you've gone and gotten married, that you don't go back to the previous spouse type of thing. I think, too, uh, one other thing that I wanted to touch on, um, Will and I were talking about this. If you are in a situation where your parents have divorced and, and, and it's illegitimate, because, or not illegitimate, one of the spouses has been unfaithful, right? Like, and they've, they've, left, they've left mom or they've left dad. Um, my understanding from Scripture is that there, there's, there's two options here. Either we don't associate with them, because they call themselves a Christian, right? Like, like we don't associate with them. We don't, we, don't, we don't make them think that their decision is okay. Or by spending time with them, we are spending time with them for gospel purposes like we would an unbeliever. That there ought to be no confusion from our, from our parent who has made this decision to leave or has made the decision to be unfaithful. There's no confusion as to whether or not I think that's okay for you to do that. That I either think you're not a believer because you will not repent of this, um, or if I believe that you're a believer, I have to remove myself and not associate with you, or at least any associations with you is based strictly on me calling you to repentance. 
that there can't be there can't be just good fellowship with you with you calling yourself a Christian and you not being repentant of this sin um, would be the counsel that I would offer and so we had that with my dad for a while and then my dad just kind of moved away completely and didn't want anything to do with us um, and, and that's kind of where we stand with my dad but again because of, of what Paul says, I think, I think those are the two scenarios where it's either I can't associate with you or if I do associate with you, it's to call you to repentance or call you to salvation that I can't let you think I'm okay with your unrepentance about this. How do you have that conversation as a child to a parent and still honor your parents? Um, it's, it's tough, and it certainly is based on age, too, I think. Um, I think there's an age where, I don't, not, not a set age, but a, a maturity level where that conversation can happen and it be, um, it be appropriate and it be it may not still not may not be received well, but it can at least be delivered well. I think that would be the key. Um, if it can't be delivered well, then I don't know that it needs to be delivered at all until maturity happens in the life of that kid, um, and that would be. I think based on outside counsel, hey, I think you need to go talk to your dad or, hey, I think you need to go talk to your mom or, hey, let us go talk to your mom or dad and, and try to handle this for you based on other people's perception of the maturity. We have a situation in our family right now um, where um, there's, there's the, the husband has left my cousin, who's a female, and I texted her brothers and I said, you guys need to go get him. Like, you need to go have a conversation with that guy. Like, this is not okay for him to do this to your sister, and I'm praying that you guys will go be a tool of reconciliation and go get this guy. You have a responsibility to go get him. Based on their spiritual lives and based on the, the prominence they have in the community, they need to go get that guy. Um, and, and, I, and I encourage them to do that. Um, so I think outside counsel kind of lends towards whether somebody's mature enough to have a conversation or not. Other questions? I was, I was just going to ask a clarification. If the if the person in the marriage who was unfaithful left and you're interacting with it within those two means, once they get married, remarried, you can't call them to repentance in the sake of like returning or leaving their spouse. It would just have to be a, okay, well, what's done is done. Now I'm going to be as gospel-focused as I can, but the same time it doesn't it take on a different dynamic because they've already closed off the possibility of God. yeah and i think ideally if the church is functioning like it's supposed to if somebody is unfaithful leaves the divorce happens the spouse gets remarried this person comes to repentance that it's repentance for salvation um, and in that case i would say at that point he too would be permitted to be remarried in the fact that his previous life is prior to being a Christian, and those things are forgiven, right? So, again, ideally, if everything's functioning like it should, somebody who is unfaithful to their spouse and a divorce happens, they are being treated as an unbeliever, and if they ever get things right, that getting right is treated as a salvation experience. So, yeah, they can't reconcile with their spouse, but there's a bigger need for reconciliation with God because they have so rejected the gospel so rejected the call to repentance, they have demonstrated that they are most likely not a Christian. And so now the call to repentance is not get things right with your spouse who's married. It's get things right with a holy God 
who you probably aren't uh, in relationship with. One last clarification. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of it more like the person, like let's say my dad left my mom and he's gone um, and I'm called to interact with him like, like things are not okay. Mm-hmm. But if he gets remarried, then that immediately, like if I was distancing myself from them, like I wouldn't continue to do so Right? Because they are now just acting as unbelievers, but in a marriage that cannot be broken there either. Right. So it wouldn't necessarily just be. There still needs to be repentance over my previous actions. So even though I can't go back and make it right, he couldn't go back and make it right with your mom, there still ought to become a point in his life where there is brokenness over the fact that I should have never left your mom. That was wrong for me to leave your mom. Um, and I need to repent of that act, even though I can't go the next step and make it right by coming home. There still needs to be an admission of, of wrongdoing there. With the physical abuse one, if there's a, a separation that happens uh, and spouse goes to jail uh, and the outlet for sexual immorality is the marriage, how do you deal with, with that? Because it's not permissible for him to divorce, um, but there is no outlet for that now. So that's that first part again. So if, the, if with the physical abuse one, so if one of the spouses ends up in jail or there's a, a physical separation that happens for protections, means um, the outlet in for sexual immorality in, in marriage is marriage, right? Right. That's the way of escape. So how do you how do you fix that situation? I mean, one of the spouses might end up in jail, and there was no wrongdoing on this person's uh, part, and that I might be creating a unicorn situation that doesn't exist, but um, no, that definitely could like, it definitely could happen, and I would say, yeah, and I would definitely say that Paul says, "Hey, the marriage, the marriage is is super helpful for protection and for purity, but even if that's removed, it doesn't then make you unable to to stay pure, right? Because I mean, you could easily have a situation where uh, health wise, your spouse can no longer have that with you, right? Like." something happens physically to them, whether that's an injury, whether that's a, a sickness or something. So they're not in jail, but they can't they can't do anything, right? And so that would also not mean that, okay, well then, in, in the same way I would say that, that the other doesn't allow for divorce because it's not permissible, I would say too, in this situation, well, that's not permissible. Like, you need to love that person, and, and, and you're not obligated to then go be immoral because you don't have the protection built into your marriage, it's just going to be difficult. It's going to be hard, um, but there's still um, other ways of escaping that temptation, even though that one's been removed, I would say. Any other thoughts, questions? And the hypotheticals are difficult because you can keep adding adding to it to make it even even harder and even harder and even what if they're never going to get out of prison it's like um i don't know (laughs) yeah (laughs) um yeah so i mean again that's where i think you just have to sit down and say okay how do we stay as true to scripture as possible um given the real scenario hypotheticals can always be more difficult than real There's that recent story that came out, too, on Desiring God where the two were engaged. Um, 
and then he had the tragic car wreck, and now he's not he's not the same um, as far as what he was before the wreck. But she went ahead and they were engaged, so she got married to him, and and now there's obviously limitations in that relationship. They've written a book, and uh, I mean just a great testimony to the gospel uh, and what the gospel can do, even in the midst of, of tragedies like that. Right. Yep. Yep. Well, like I said, um, the elders have been talking about this a lot. I would encourage those of you that, that would like to read and learn more to, to pick up this book by John MacArthur. Um, I think Will and I had talked about this way back at Mount Gilead when both of us were kind of navigating with parental divorces. Um, the, all the elders have read this. Marcus has read this, too. Um, this is a great starting point for just kind of thinking through kind of how the elders are viewing this topic. Um, a lot of what I've shared with you over the last couple of weeks has come from this too. Um, so I encourage you to pick this up if you want to read a little bit more. encourage you to come talk to the elders because I think we're all on the same page on this stuff. I wanted us to be on the same page before I taught it. Um, and so we went through this together to make sure that we would be on the same page. What's the name of that book? The Divorce Dilemma um, by John MacArthur. Short, easy to read. Um, Extremely helpful, though, I think. So, all right, let's pray. Um, I know we went long today, but I wanted to give you guys a chance to ask um, as you needed to. So, Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the guidance that you give to us in your word. We thank you for the marriages that are in this church. We pray that you would keep them, um, keep them together, that you would preserve our marriages. I pray for our singles in our church, that they would pursue marriage if you've called them to marriage, and that they would do so faithfully, and that you would bring spouses to them in your timing. Um, Father, protect us from divorce. Protect us from the hardness of the heart that would lead to divorce. Father, help us to counsel others in our life that are going through a divorce, how to encourage them, how to keep them true to Scripture. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the Word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.